0: nothing We thank we have the privilege.
1: So, um, remain standing. Um, As the Justin Timberlake memes reminded us yesterday, it is now May, so uh, we have a new verse. So hopefully you grabbed your new verse from the back, um, and we will now read it together since none of us have it memorized within the last 30 minutes, right? Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. 1 Thessalonians 2.8b. All right. You may be seated. So, um, I have a question for you. You don't have to raise your hands, uh, but you can answer this in your own minds. How many of you suffer from baby elephant syndrome? Baby elephant syndrome. Now, of course, the first um, place to start in answering that question is, what is baby elephant syndrome? Well, I'm glad you asked. So imagine you are on a trip to the zoo and during that trip to the zoo you visit the elephant exhibit. Maybe you've done this before. Uh, our zoo here in South Bend is, uh, is in the process of building their elephant exhibit. So elephants are these giant enormous incredibly strong animals right with absolutely no effort whatsoever they can lay waste to anything in, your, in their path remember that scene from The Jungle Book when the elephants are marching. They're on march and they're carving this path through the jungle, crushing everything underfoot. Big trees, small trees, brush, whatever stands in their way, they're just laying waste to everything. They're just marching and singing and smashing everything. Elephants are incredibly deadly animals. They are the largest animals on earth and can weigh up to 18,000 pounds nine times. Like 500 people every year are killed by elephants. They are gigantic behemoths. So, back to the zoo, now knowing what you know about elephants. You walk up to the exhibit and there's this massive elephant there with super long tusks looking like it is ready to plow through a jungle. And it's got this big wide open habitat uh, there at the zoo. But, much to your surprise, the elephant is not roaming around. The elephant is on a leash. Thank you for, for doing that, Daryl. The elephant is on a leash. The trainers want that elephant to stay where it's at so that they can do whatever they need to do you know, in, and out, in and around the exhibit. But they have the elephant tied with this tiny little rope. It, it, it looks like dental floss compared to the size of the elephant and so they've got this little rope tied to its tree trunk of a leg and then the other side of the rope is tied to this small tent peg hammered into the ground and you're looking at this setup and you're thinking I could get out of that and I'm only myself. I I could do that. This will surprise none of you, uh, but one time my dog Coco Uh, was tied on a leash run, right? So it's this long metal thing that you screw into the ground. It's like a corkscrew thing. It's like this long, okay? No one should be able to pull this out of the ground. So we screwed this thing into the ground all the way, probably further, actually, than what it needed to go, and we tied her leash on there. And she was so excited as she's running around the yard that she yanked this thing out of the ground, okay? She leaves this giant crater in my backyard. That's Coco, right? So definitely... An elephant could pull this dinky little uh, tent peg out of the ground without any effort whatsoever. Just flex a muscle and it's there. So you're there at the zoo and and you're looking at this elephant and and you're trying to figure out why on earth they have this nine-ton tank tied to a tent peg with dental floss. And you're like, aren't they afraid of what's going to happen when this elephant definitely breaks out of this? Because it's a guarantee. So you call one of the zookeepers over and and you say, why are the elephant trainers so crazy? What is wrong with them? And then the zookeeper explains to you that the elephant will not be going anywhere. Guarantee. Because of a psychological phenomenon called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Learned helplessness occurs when an animal acts as though it is helpless, even if it isn't, simply because it's been trained to be. So here's how it works. When that elephant was first born, it wasn't so big and strong. Big for an animal, but not compared to what it is as an adult. Much, much smaller elephant. So, the trainers would tie that baby elephant to this tent peg. And as a newborn, that baby elephant wasn't strong enough to pull the tent peg out of the ground. And try as it might, and it would pull against it, and it would try to escape, but that little guy could not get free of the tent peg. It wasn't strong enough. And so what would eventually happen is, the elephant would just stop trying. It would learn, I can't get free of this, I'm stuck to it for good. Even when that elephant reached a point where it is more than large enough, more than strong enough, it's already too late because it's learned to be helpless. It is accepted that it is too weak. It does not know that it has outgrown this weakness. The elephant doesn't know how strong it truly is. They don't realize that this peg is no longer a true nemesis and so for the rest of their lives they are helplessly held by this peg. The idea of learned helplessness applies to people as well. Sometimes you will experience something that breaks you, something that hurts you, maybe it's something you did, maybe it's something that was done to you, maybe a combination of both and now you are held down by that thing believing yourself to be held to it forever. When you were in the middle of it, it was stronger than you. But even though you serve a God who is so much stronger than any of this brokenness, you are still tied to this tent peg, helplessly operating as though you can never be free. All of us, you'll agree, all of us, every single one of us are dealing with brokenness in various ways. So what has that led us to do? It's, it's led us to normalize brokenness. We've gotten used to it. We don't fight against it anymore because why even try? But we have to understand that brokenness is not normal. Brokenness is universal. It's ubiquitous, meaning everybody experiences it, but it's not normal. Because normal is defined as that which establishes a standard and then that which conforms to the standard. But our standard is not brokenness. Our standard is wholeness. Uh, An English poet named Alexander Pope said, to err is human. But that's not true. To err is to err. To do something broken is to just do something broken. But God designed humans to be complete To be whole in Him. To walk in glory and perfection as a reflection of His own glory and perfection. And one day we will. And that will be normal. Right now we're living in the midst of this brokenness. Brokenness that we're so accustomed to that we've turned it into normal. Something that we should expect. Again, you don't need to raise your hands, but have you ever looked at your brokenness and said, I'm supposed to have this. This is is what I deserve. Well this is what everyone deals with. This is no big deal. Lots of people have it worse than this. Why should I complain? It's, it's okay. I'm used to it. This is just how it is. On the flip side, when you hear stories of other people experiencing healing and wholeness, do you kind of scoff internally and think, yeah right. That dude's lying. They're, they're just hiding their brokenness. Or, wow, must be nice. must be nice to be them. I, I, I don't get to experience that. Very few people ever do. I don't get to experience that for myself. I, I shouldn't expect it or else I'll be disappointed. Why should I even seek that? It won't happen. I, I don't even know if that's what God wants for me. Because if it was, wouldn't I have that now? Today, we're beginning a new series called The Healer, and in this series, we're going to look at some of the healing miracles of Jesus, and specifically, we're going to look at what Jesus was truly trying to address in each of those miracles, and what He was communicating to the person that He was healing, and to the people that were watching, and now to us who learn of those miracles. And there's this idea that I'm going to be be repeating over and over and over and over and over throughout this series. So you might as well write it down. I didn't put it on the screen, but I'm going to be repeating it over and over. And this is what will frame this entire series. Miracles were always a messenger, never the message. Miracles were always a messenger, never the message. Too many times, preachers look at the Bible and they'll say, See, God wants to heal your body. Jesus wants to bless you. Jesus wants you to be free from debt. He was a healer after all, and He wants to heal you and give you your best life now. Here's the problem. That's not the point of these stories of healing. In fact, it often wasn't about the healing at all. Every single miracle of Jesus was a messenger to a deeper message. And that deeper message is one of eternal hope. So we're going to explore that as we go. But what I do want you to take away from this series is is that through these healing stories, we're going to learn that God does want to heal your spiritual brokenness. God does want to free you from shame. He he wants to free you from sin. God absolutely wants to address the learned helplessness that we have in our lives. Showing us that the sins that we've tied ourselves to, the things that we've done or the things that have been done to us, are things that we are going to be free from as He frees us from those things. Spiritually, He wants us to be healthy and whole. And we're going to see what kinds of things he means to heal in us. So, let's jump into our first story of the series. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Mark 5, 21 through 43 says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians And had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and had come up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, "Uh, Jesus, (laughs) you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. and when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went into the, uh, went into the room where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This story is one of the most significant stories about the miracles of Jesus in the entire New Testament, because of what it says about the powerful love of Jesus, He heals this woman who has this physical affliction, and then he raises a girl from the dead. Now, he does those sorts of things elsewhere, and there are many places where he heals someone, several places where he raises someone from the dead, but this story is significant because of how he does it. Before we jump into the details of the story... Again, let's frame what the story is about, because in reading this story, the meaning that we so often, so typically derive from this story is, have strong faith in Jesus, and we take this story and we say, this illustrates that Jesus will will bring healing to every affliction if we just have strong enough faith. We bring him our sickness, we bring him our disease, our our financial woes, and we say, well, this story teaches us that if we have genuine faith, he will physically heal us. And here's the thing. Sometimes it is true that God heals. I believe that. I've witnessed it. Sometimes God heals physically. Sometimes he takes away the sickness. Sometimes he takes away the disease. Sometimes he provides in the lack. He removes the affliction. But... Sometimes he doesn't. We absolutely should bring every affliction to him with the faith that he will be able to heal if he is willing. But other places in Scripture show us that there are times that he allows that affliction to continue, and that has nothing to do with a lack of faith. Sometimes he says to us, My grace is sufficient in your weakness. So physical healing is not primarily what this story is about. Faith for healing physically is not primarily what it's about. What this story is about is how Jesus cleanses us of our sin, and he brings us from death to life when we trust in him. In this story, what Jesus is doing is he's ripping a tent peg out of the ground, giving life and freedom. Remember, miracles were always the messenger, never the message. So I don't want the point of this series that we're starting to come across as something that you'd hear in a faith healer service. I want us to grasp very securely the truth that God is far more concerned with you living your best life forever than He is with you living your best life now. Tell me if you've considered this. There's a lot of stories in the Gospels of Jesus performing miracles. 38 of them are specifically recorded. We, we know that there's thousands more. Um, for example, in John, he says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus said or, or taught or did, it would fill all the books in the world. He's using hyperbole, obviously, but the point that he's getting across is that there's a lot of stuff that Jesus did that wasn't specifically recorded. He healed a lot of people. But, but tell me if you've considered this. Every single One of Jesus' miracles was temporary, except one. All the miracles that Jesus performed were temporary miracles, except one. Every person that he healed eventually either got sick again, got something else, or just got old, and they died. Every single person that Jesus rose from the dead died again. Some pretty quickly. Uh, If you remember the story of Lazarus, right? It's this incredible story where Jesus says to a dead man, Lazarus, come forth. And he's been dead for days. And he comes out of the grave. It's this amazing story. Have you ever noticed that in that story, the very next verses that come after Say, at that point, the Pharisees determined that they wanted to put Lazarus to death. I mean, imagine that, right? You have just been resurrected. You're like, I got a second lease on life, and then, bam, you get taken out right away. (laughs) Unbelievable. So every single one of Jesus' miracles was temporary. Not a single one resulted in immortality for somebody else. There was one that resulted in immortality for himself. Jesus' own resurrection is the only permanent miracle that he performed. It's the only one. So what does that mean? What it means is that every single one of his miracles is a precursor. He's saying, I'm going to give you this temporary sign so that you'll believe in the eternal truth. Jesus' goal was never to just take away everyone's sicknesses in a broken world that remains broken. His goal is to show a temporary sign to demonstrate his eternal power. A perfect example of this is in the story of the paralytic that's brought to Jesus and is raised, uh, I'm sorry, lowered through the roof, right? His friends bring him to Jesus and they lower him through the roof. So they've done a lot of work to bring this guy who's paralyzed and lower him down. And in this story, it's hilarious, okay? This guy, the, the roof opens up, and this guy is lowered down in front of Jesus, and what is everyone waiting for? Everyone is waiting for Jesus to go, get up and walk. Instead, Jesus looks at this guy, and he says, your faith has healed your sin. Your sins are forgiven. So instead of healing, he says, your sins are forgiven. Like, seriously, that's what we're doing here? And the Pharisees are watching and they're like, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus looks over, he's like, bingo, knuckleheads. No, he's like, "Uh, so why are you guys sitting there questioning? How about this? What's easier, to heal a man or to forgive his sins? Well, just so you know that I have the authority to do this, sir, get up and walk. You are healed. So that miracle wasn't about the healing. That miracle was about establishing authority. It was about demonstrating his identity. So he uses this lesser miracle of healing to show that he has the authority to give the greater miracle, which is eternal freedom. The miracle is a messenger. So the point of this series is not going to be, name it and claim it. Jesus wants to heal your diseases and sicknesses and give you your best life now. The point is to look at the ways that Jesus healed broken people and to show that those temporary miracles were really about eternal hope. And then, hopefully, that will cause us to look at the brokenness in our own lives and see that Jesus wants to give us eternal hope as well. He wants you to know that your brokenness is not normal. Eternal hope is normal. And whether He heals a physical need is up to Him. But He absolutely wants to heal your broken heart. He wants to fill your heart with the eternal normal. He does not want you to accept spiritual brokenness. He wants to heal it. Even if it's temporary. Even if your heart gets broken again tomorrow. He wants you to come in faith to Him and ask Him to heal this brokenness that comes from sin, whether from yours or someone else's. He wants you to experience healing from broken hope, broken peace. And He wants you to set your eyes on eternal hope, So that if you're afflicted again, and you will be, you'll be held by his hand. So with that super long introduction, let's look at the uh, specifics in this story. In this story, we have two characters. Two characters who are juxtaposed next to each other. And we're going to be mainly focusing on the woman in this story. But we have to see the way that Mark is placing these stories together. So the first character that we have in this story is this guy, Jairus. Jairus, specifically named here, it says is one of the rulers of the synagogue. So what that means is that Jairus is a man who is important in this town. He is a man of status. He's powerful. Likely, he's wealthy. This is a guy that everyone knows. This is a guy that everyone would agree is a very important person. And his only daughter, who is 12 years old, is on her deathbed. I have daughters. I've pictured this scene. I cannot imagine what he's going through. The desperation that that he's experiencing. And he's very clearly desperate because he comes to Jesus in this story, and he falls down in front of him, and he begs. In this culture, men especially important ones, do not do that. It is an emptying of one's honor to do something like that. But he's desperate. He comes to Jesus and he falls before him and he says, please, my little daughter is at the point of death. It says he implored him earnestly, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so Jesus tells him, all right, I'll go with you. But then he's interrupted, and we find our second character in the story, and it is this woman. So we have this huge crowd pressing around Jesus, right? The paparazzi are everywhere. They're all elbowing their way to try to get closer and closer to him, and this woman pushes her way through the crowd to get to Jesus. Maybe she's heard that he's only going to be in town temporarily because he's going to Jairus' house. So she wants to get to Jesus while she still has a chance. But there's a contrast that's here in the way that these two characters are presented. This woman is not named. She is culturally in this time considered unimportant. She has been suffering for 12 years. So you have a 12-year-old girl who's at the point of death, and you have a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. The man comes and addresses Jesus. She tries to just sneak up and grab his robe. And so this, this juxtaposition of these two characters, this comparison is important. And among other things, showing us that Jesus heals the unimportant and the important alike. And, and what these two have in common is faith. But both of them are entirely helpless. Regardless of their station in life, one has wealth and influence. One is unknown and unnamed, but both are tied to a tent peg. Both are helpless. So let's zero in a bit on this woman to see the message being delivered by the miracle. If you're taking notes, here's point number one. This is the only point of the sermon. So there we have it. One-point sermon today. You're welcome. Point number one. The healer performs miracles to bring broken people back to community. The healer performs miracles to bring broken people back to community. Guys, this is so important. It is so important that we start our series here because this is something that we're going to see over and over in the miracles of Jesus. So many of the stories of healing feature people that have become outcasts because of their ailment. And in healing these people, Jesus is not only restoring their physical body back to health, he is also restoring their place in the community. So, what is this woman's affliction? It says, There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Scholars tell us that more than likely what this woman is suffering from is a condition of menstrual hemorrhaging. And it tells us that she's been suffering from this condition for 12 years. Over a decade, she's been suffering from this condition. Now, that's bad enough in and of itself to have suffered physically in that way for 12 years. Anyone who has suffered a condition for a long time, for that amount of time, that's awful. Physically, that's terrible. But it's not just a physical issue. It's not even primarily a physical issue. Even larger what we have at play here is a social issue. Because, and we just spent some time in the Old Testament, right? We we looked at various places in the Old Testament. Because of the laws regarding ceremonial cleanliness that were given to the Israelites in the Old Testament law, her ailment would have rendered her ceremonially unclean. The law stated that a hemorrhaging person would themselves be ritually unclean, as well as anyone that touched her and anything that she touched. Now, let me just throw out here in case anybody's joining us for the first time, unclean does not mean sinful. Not the same thing, okay? It just means ceremonially unclean for the purposes of temple worship. So what does that mean then for this woman? what it means is that she cannot go to the synagogue. She cannot go to the temple. She has been disconnected from the community of God for over a decade. She cannot go to worship with the community. She can't. Because she herself is ritually unclean, and anyone who touches her would be unclean for a week. Anything that she touches is considered unclean. And so we we put this all together, and and, and what do we have? We have a person that everyone avoids like the plague. We have a pariah. An outcast. An untouchable. Literally. So not only is this woman suffering from from a physical issue, she is suffering socially. She is a total outcast, she is untouchable. More than likely, as we read through the lines here, no one has touched this woman in 12 years. No hug from a friend, no kiss goodnight, not even a handshake in 12 years. Imagine going 12 years without human contact. Every relationship that this woman has is broken. Any friendship that, that she has is gone, or, or at least is from a distance. She is disconnected. She has lost relationships. She has lost community. And she's also desperate. We, we read that she has spent everything that she has. And, and not only has she not gotten better, it says she's, she's gotten worse. Every resource that is at her disposal to try to, to deal with this condition is wasted. She's lost everything. She's lost her money, she's lost her physical body, and she has lost everything socially. Her relationships, broken. And she, like Jairus, is desperate. And so in her desperation, in her desperate faith, she reaches out and grabs Jesus' robe, which leads to her healing. Now, note the way that Jesus responds. Jesus responds in a way that the disciples find strange. It says this, Immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, uh, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth. So again, the the, the scene here is Jesus is walking toward Jairus' house and there's a crowd. Everybody's pressed in around him. It is is the, the paparazzi everywhere. Everyone's trying to get close. Everyone's touching Jesus. And the disciples are like, dude, what do you mean who touched my garments? Who hasn't? Everyone here is touching your garments. What are you what are you talking about? But Jesus stops in the middle of the crowd and he turns around. And he looks around and he says, "Who who touched me?" And probably everyone in there is like I I, I mean I did. You? Yeah. We we all did. Why why are you Are you asking that question? But what we have here is Jesus not allowing this woman to remain anonymous. Now, she's gotten the healing, right? She she already has the healing that she was in this moment for. It said as soon as she touched his garment, it says in verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body she was healed from her disease. So, this scene could have easily gone like this. She elbows through the crowd, She gets to Jesus, she grabs his robe, and then books it out of there. Jesus does not let that happen. This woman wants to remain anonymous, and Jesus doesn't let her. She is afraid to come forward, says the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why is she so afraid? Because again, she... Is unclean and by touching him according to the ritual laws she would have made him unclean and also everyone in the crowd that she just elbowed past to get to Jesus and she is afraid that the rabbi is now going to excoriate her shame her publicly for making him unclean and instead Jesus responds with unbelievable tenderness in this moment. He looks at her. Verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This woman is, is on her knees in shame. More than likely, Jesus has to lift her face up to look at him. And this is the first time in 12 years that any person has touched her. And he says to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Think about this. In all four Gospels, this is the only time, the only time that Jesus is ever recorded calling someone daughter. This is the one time. And Jesus had a lot of close relationships with women in his life. There were a lot of women who were close to Jesus. But this is the first time and only time in recorded scripture that he looks at a woman and he says, My daughter, your faith has saved you. Literally, in the Greek, it doesn't say your faith has healed you. It says your faith has saved you. This is not just about physical healing. This is about a relational connection to the Messiah providing salvation. This is a reversal of the unclean. Because again, in the ritual laws of the Old Testament, if an unclean person touches a clean person, it makes the clean person unclean. It's one way. It's one way. If an unclean person touches something, that thing becomes unclean. There's only one direction that this goes in. But this is the opposite. Rather than her touching Jesus and making him unclean, spreading her uncleanness to him, Jesus takes his cleanliness and puts it on her. He reverses that law. He reverses that curse. He reverses that direction. And he says, I am the only one who can make you clean. You are clean. I'm the only one that can do that. I'm the only one that can reverse that. I'm the only one that can absorb the unclean and reverse it. And this is exactly what Jesus does when we come to him and bring him our sins. He is the only one that can reverse that. No matter what we try to do to earn our way to God, no matter what we try to do to make ourselves clean, like this woman, many of us have tried everything to clean ourselves. We've tried every effort, everything the world has to offer, every religious checklist. Oh, I'm supposed to go to church? Check. I'm supposed to read the Bible? Check. I'm supposed to tithe? Check. I'm supposed to do X, Y, Z? Check, check, check. I'm good with God now, right? We try to do everything that we can to clean ourselves, but we can't do that. All we can do in our unclean state is make everything else unclean. Jesus is the only one that can reverse that. He's the only one that can say, I make you clean. Now, if you have baby elephant syndrome, you've probably come to a place where you believe that whatever brokenness, whatever uncleanness you have is permanent, is is normal. And perhaps, whatever it is that you're dealing with, perhaps that has also led to you becoming ostracized. Like this woman who who lost social relationships because of this uncleanness, perhaps the brokenness that you were experiencing has led to lost relationships, lost friendships, maybe a lost connection with God, maybe feeling like you are not connected to God or to the church. And so, here we see that Jesus desires not only to heal your brokenness, but also to restore you to community. Remember, every miracle is a messenger, not a message. The message carried by this miracle is that Christ is not only a healer, but also a restorer. When he healed this woman, he restored her place in society. Her, her, her ability to go to the temple, her ability to connect with others. He didn't just heal her body. He set her on a path of wholeness with others. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that every relationship she lost was restored. That, that's not promised here. But she absolutely was free to pursue new relationships. She was no longer untouchable. Jesus wants to make sure that you are no longer untouchable because of whatever it is that you're dealing with. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Almost forgot about Jairus, didn't we? (laughs) Remember, the scene starts out with Jairus. Jairus has been standing here this whole time, probably looking at his Apple Watch, going, "Uh, what are we waiting for? Remember my daughter, Jesus? This messenger from the ruler's house comes and tells him, don't bother Jesus anymore. It's over. It's lost cause. Good effort. It's too late. And in that moment, again, picture what this guy is experiencing. He's just received the news. Your daughter is dead. The world has come crumbling down. And in that moment, Jesus locks eyes with him. Locks eyes with him and he says, Do not fear, only believe. There's this flicker of hope that he ignites. Do not fear, only believe. And in that choice, Jairus had a choice to make. In that moment, Jairus had a choice to make. And he makes the right one. We find that Jesus goes with him to his house. They came uh, to the ruler of the house, uh, the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he'd entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So Jesus goes with Jairus to his house. And there's people who are wailing and crying and playing funeral music. In those days, there were professional mourners that were hired for a funeral procession. They're paid essentially to set an ambiance, okay? And so these people are making all kinds of commotion. And Jesus enters and He's like, Why are you guys making such a fuss? The child is only sleeping. And they laugh derisively at Jesus. She's dead, you crazy person. What are you talking about? And so he walks into the little girl's room with just the parents and, and three of his disciples. And picture what the parents are feeling. Jairus and his wife walking into this room, and there is his little girl. I can picture my little Marisol laying lifeless on the bed, and this is the first time that he's seen it, right? She was alive when he left. Barely, but alive. And now it's like walking into the morgue and seeing her little lifeless body for the very first time. I don't know if, you, if any of you have ever had to identify the body of a just-passed loved one. I have, and it's awful. It's gut-wrenching. And so here Jesus walks over, and he kneels down, And he takes her hands in his hands, and he says to her, Talitha, kumi." And it's translated here, little girl, I say to you, arise. But Greek scholars tell us that it's actually a bit deeper than that, that the term he uses is the most tender term available for a little girl. So it's it's like he says to her just above a whisper, Sweetheart, it's time to get up. Sweetie, it's time to get up. And again, I picture times when I've woken Marisola from a nap. I go into her room, and I, 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 I see her sleeping, and she looks so sweet. And I grab her hands, and I say, Sweetie, it's time to get up. Sweetie, it's, it's time to wake up now. We've got to go. And immediately, immediately at the sound of his voice, this, this girl gets up. Immediately, at the sound of his voice, like, don't miss what's going on here. The single greatest enemy that any of us face is death. It is incredibly ugly. It is horrible and painful and agonizing. And it will take every single one of us. It is the insurmountable foe. And this girl has fallen prey to the ultimate brokenness of this world, to disease and death. The undertaker in his black robes has come and taken her away. And Jesus defeats death so easily like it's an afternoon nap. Jesus treats our greatest enemy like a cat nap. If that's not a boss move, I've never seen one. If He can do this, don't you think He can heal whatever brokenness is in your heart? Here in this story, again, this juxtaposition, we we have a social resurrection juxtaposed with a physical resurrection. We have a woman who suffered for 12 years and a a 12-year-old girl who's just died. And effortlessly, the healer restores both of them back into community. We serve a God who commands disease and death. And he reveals in this story, there is no such thing as a lost cause. So what does that leave for us to do? A couple closing thoughts. First, I would urge you, do not fear, only believe your spiritual case is not lost. You are not too far gone. If you have never asked Christ to cleanse you of your sin and bring you from death to life, if you have never come to Him and had Him make you clean, do not fear. Only believe, because He is the one who is able to bring brokenness into wholeness once again. Second, know that there is no sin too great for him to cleanse, right? Because that, uh, a lot of us hear the story of the gospel and we go, okay, yeah, 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 but you don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand what I've, exp- I did this or, or, or this happened to me. Y'all got some normal stuff. I got this stuff. Again, we have here the healer looking at both disease and death at its worst and going, gone. Nothing in your life is too great for him to cleanse. Third, I would urge you to know that Jesus is not too busy with the masses to care about your needs. Remember, in this story, we've got this super important guy, the one who would get the attention in society, and he is served by Jesus. Okay? Jesus doesn't leave out the rich. He doesn't leave out the elite. A lot of times we villainize the rich and elite, don't we? A lot of times we look at them as the bad guy, like they're over there buying Twitter, and we're like, we got nothing to do with that. Jesus doesn't leave out the rich here. He he heals him. But Jesus also gives healing to the unnamed, unimportant person in society who elbowed through the crowd to get to him. Wherever you are in whatever hierarchy you're imagining, Jesus is there. Jesus meets you right there. And finally, I urge you to know that Jesus wants you Uh, that Jesus wants to restore your connection to others. He wants to restore your purity in worship. He doesn't want you to be wearing a scarlet letter for the rest of your life, even if it's only in your own mind. Jesus wants to take whatever brokenness that is in your life and, and, and say to you, I have you here in the body with other broken people that I have healed. It's about me, not about them. And so I'm going to reconnect you to each one of these people that you think you're ostracized from for good. There's a brokenness that only I can heal in the community of people. Your brokenness is not normal. The healer wants to restore that brokenness. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a healer, God. I confess, I need I I, I need the healing for myself today, Lord. I, I I need it, and I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one that has brokenness, insurmountable brokenness that. What am I going to do with? Lord, you are a healer that restores. You you are a healer that brings healing to relationships. I pray that we place our faith in you for that. Lord, if there's any people here or or watching online right now or, or listening later on the podcast who have never been healed by you spiritually, who have never brought their their uncleanness to you and and have you make them clean, I pray that that, that you would bring those people to a place of faith and surrender, that they would come before you desperate and say, I need you to heal me. I need you to free me. I need you to make me clean as only you can. And Lord, as only you can, I pray that you would bring the dead to life. resurrect as only you can. God, bring humble surrender to each one of our hearts. Lord, whatever whatever we're facing, each one of us, whatever we're facing, Lord, I pray that you would tenderly speak to us by your Spirit to give us assurance that you will meet us in that brokenness and do what only you can do. As we sing to you, Lord, I pray that that your spirit would do its work in our hearts, that you would lead us to whatever decisions we we might need to make, that you would be glorified in setting people free. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, uh, we'll close in worship. words perfectly communicate what i was just talking about it's more than anything that we can do right we we, we can't do this we, we can't accomplish this we we can't make this happen on our own there, there's only one who can and it's jesus he is the only one that we need the only one that will do and so i encourage you whatever decisions maybe you need to make whatever you need to consider whatever Stuff you're carrying around, I, I want to I, I invite you to deal with that. And to do so in community and, and, and to have conversations with people that you can trust here and say, I, I need to deal with this. Because I want to put resources in your hands, like actual things to help. That, that if you're dealing with something that, that we can provide a resource for, man, let's do it you know, but it'll come with a step of faith. Just like this man came before Jesus and he fell at his feet and, and he humbled himself. He emptied himself of, uh, of his status, his position. He humbled himself before Jesus. And because he did that, Jesus showed healing to his family. The, this lady threw all caution to the wind and, and elbowed through the crowd and, and did something crazy to get to Jesus. These two have in common the faith that they demonstrated by taking a step. The healing that Christ offers will come after you take that step of faith. And to do that where people can see it uh, here in in the community. So whatever that is, marinate on that this week. Just sit in it, let the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you And take whatever steps you need to take. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, for inviting us tonight to experience healing that only you can provide. And so, Father, I pray that whatever needs to be dealt with, whatever healing needs to be experienced, Lord, that these people here and watching online and listening on the podcast, Lord, that that they would take a step of faith. To reach out in community. Ask for your healing and then watch as you perform a miracle in their hearts. Even if the, the physical thing doesn't go away. And maybe it will. Maybe for some people you want to do that. But even if the physical thing doesn't go away, Lord, I know that you mean to heal broken hearts and to restore people into community. God, I pray that Um, as we go, as we consider these things, as we allow your spirit to lead us and teach us, God, that we will spread that to other people. That the gospel, Lord, would be evident in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that the mission starts after church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.